Can you believe we're up to chapter 8 in the book of Acts? It seems like only a few weeks ago I was up here preaching the very first um, chapter, but already we're eight weeks into it. Now for those people who are here for maybe the very first time, what we've been doing is we're preaching right through the book of Acts. So we've gone chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and this is going to take us all the way through to the end of January. So we're really excited about this. And let's just have a quick recap of where we've been so far. Chapter 1. Do you remember what happened in chapter 1? It was the ascension of Jesus. Chapter 2, we had the experience of Pentecost. Chapter 3, we had the healing of the lame man by Peter and John. Chapter 4, we had the disciples praying that the Holy Spirit would fill them with boldness to to share the faith. Chapter 5, we had um, Ananias and Sapphira, and we saw that conflict was actually in the early church. Who would have thought that the Apostles' Church had conflict? But it was right there. Chapter 6, we saw that new growth um, produces new problems. And we saw the whole issue which eventuated with Stephen being appointed as a deacon. And chapter 7, which we heard last week, we saw the stoning of Stephen. And with that comes a very decided shift in the focus of the preaching of the gospel. It went from being primarily aimed towards the Jews within Jerusalem... And from here on in throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see the gospel going, spreading wider and wider as it goes to fulfill the mission that God had given it. Um, have you, has anyone here been following the news lately? There's been a lot of very um, large events happening in the, in the world at the moment. There's been conflicts in Gaza, conflicts in Iraq, conflicts in Ukraine, but one that is really sort of caught my attention, and it's kind of dropped out from the news a little bit recently, is the disappearance of the Malaysian airline flight MH370. Did anyone else find this an incredibly mysterious event that took place? What happened on on March um, the 8th, at 20 past 1 a.m., this plane 777 left from um, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, headed to Beijing, and within one hour the air traffic controllers had completely lost contact contact with this plane. And since that time, no one has heard of, again, those 227 people from 15 different countries, and this entire Boeing 777 has just seemingly vanished into thin air. And what has happened since since then is this multinational search effort to try and find this plane. And have they found it yet? They haven't found a briefcase, they haven't found a life jacket, not even a crumpled piece of paper. And so this has really just been a completely mysterious thing. But with all the money that's been spent and all these intelligent people working on this mission of finding this plane, they've narrowed it down to a patch of ocean in the Indian Ocean the size of Tasmania. Okay, you might be thinking, well, that's not huge, but you have to remember that this plane is probably now on the bottom of that patch of ocean, the size of Tasmania. And that section of the ocean is about almost five kilometers deep. Now, if you sort of think and try and process what it takes to search an area the size of Tasmania, Tasmania five kilometers deep, you start to get a picture of how gigantic this task is going to be to find this missing plane. Um, In addition... The current maps that we have of this part of the ocean, in one article I was reading, um, the the maps that we have are 250 times less accurate than the maps we have of both Mars and Venus. Okay, so we know more about these planets out in space 
that we know about this patch of, of um, the bottom of the ocean in the Indian Ocean here. Now, what would it take in order to, com- to actually complete a mission as large and as complicated as finding this plane? Well, what the world thinks is a good idea is to try to assemble the, the most highly experienced and intelligent, a team of the most intelligent people, a team of people who are experts in underwater um, recovery and those sorts of things. And if they get a great team, they think maybe that will be the solution to finding this. And so they've put up a, a six-month contract worth $60 million for, to try and um, lure in some of these professionals in this area. Oil and gas companies, treasure hunters, math gurus, people with all sorts of technical um, experience in these. There's even companies that helped um, find the Titanic are involved in, in trying to um, bid for this, this contract. Because the world realizes that if you want to try and to achieve a mission as extraordinary as this, then you need some truly extraordinary people involved. Now, this reminds me a little bit of the size of the mission that Jesus gave his disciples back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And let's see if this works. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So here we have in the first chapter, Jesus has his team of experts. His people who he's been training for three and a half years, they've seen him, seen Jesus in action, God himself ministering people, and he gets his team of experts, and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Does that sound like a big mission? That's incredibly. That actually makes the mission of finding this plane quite small. And you've got to put yourself in their shoes. They don't even know of some of the continents that lie beyond them. And there's hundreds of languages, thousands of people groups, and they have to somehow take this message of Jesus and present it to the world. And so Jesus there, he has his team of experts, these, um, these people he's trained, experienced um, people to, to do this. And it starts off going really well. With Peter's first sermon, we have 3,000 people added to the church. By the end of his second sermon in, in Acts chapter 4, we have the church has grown to 5,000 people. Stage one of this mission seems to be going fantastically. This is essentially a mega church meeting in Jerusalem here. However, when we get to Acts chapter 8, things begin to fall apart. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, um, turn to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to discover that the church begins to meet some very real and very serious hardships. Acts chapter 8 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And that's referring back to Stephen, who was just stoned in the previous chapter. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here we have this church, which is going fantastically, suddenly becomes the object of a very intense and real persecution. And it says all of them were scattered abroad. Now, you've got to think of how many people this is. Remember, the church is well in excess of 5,000 people at this stage. And these people are fleeing, they're leaving their homes, they're leaving familiarity, they're leaving their jobs, and they're going to find shelter in these surrounding villages and towns. Let's read verse 2. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. 
It's easy sometimes to skim over these, these great hardships that they, that they faced. And it's easy just to read about, oh, Stephen got stoned. But think about if you're in that situation and he was one of your friends and he was killed, um, probably a lot of them even probably witnessed this, and it says they had great lamentation. These were deep sorrows that the, the church was facing. Verse 3, And Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So things are not looking good for the early church. Paul is, is going into these houses, dragging out people and putting them in prison. If you read the beginning of chapter 9, it says that he's breeding murderous threats against these people. So this means that Paul isn't, his ultimate aim is not just to get them in prison. Paul's objective is to destroy the whole of the church, just like they destroyed the life of Stephen. But the question we're going to sort of briefly look at this morning is, why does God allow such difficult things to happen to a faithful group of people? They're there, they're worshipping together, they're preaching the word, they're doing everything they're supposed to be, and God seems to allow the devil to come in and absolutely smash them. And maybe there's people here today who have been going through similar situations. You feel like, you're praying regularly, you're reading your Bible, you're being faithful, maybe you're even sharing your faith. But it seems like the devil is out to get you. And where is God when these things are happening? Well, the answer to that question, I guess, is a very multifaceted, um, broad um, answer that would have to be given. And it probably varies from case to case. But when you read verse 4 in Acts chapter 8, we see a little insight as to why God why Jesus allowed these sorts of troubles to come upon the people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. So here we have 5,000 plus people scattered amongst the surrounding areas. But Jesus allows it to take place because in the process of these people scattered, Jesus has 5,000 missionaries going out and preaching the word wherever they go. Now let's have a look at exactly where these, these missionaries, these sort of conscripted missionaries, ended up going. Verse, let's go back to verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now have a look back on the screen. What was the mission that God had given his people? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Stage two of this mission, Samaria and Judea, is happening because of the persecution that is happening upon the early church. And so God is not the author of these terrible persecutions, but God can certainly use them for his work. But there's a really important detail that Luke includes in the end of this verse 1, in chapter 8. So Acts 8, verse 1, and we'll read from halfway down. It says, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except the apostles. Makes you wonder, why were the apostles not scattered like everyone else? Well, one of the reasons might be that they had come to the point where they no longer feared death. Remember, when they were put in prison, an angel came and basically opened the doors and they just walked away. 
If God is able to protect them like that, who are they going to be afraid of? But the thing is here is that um, Luke is not so much concerned with what they're doing in Jerusalem. What Luke is concerned with here is the fact that when these people are scattered abroad, preaching the word, who's not amongst them? The apostles. Now let me take you back to the story I shared at the beginning. The lost airline plane, uh, Malaysian Airlines plane MH370, we've, we talked about how this is such an incredible mission that's going to be to find this plane. And the world, know, world, knows, world knows that if you want to achieve such an extraordinary mission, you need an extraordinary select team of professional experts in that area. But the awesome thing is that when stage two of God's mission is underway, God sends out 5,000 missionaries and not one of them is an apostle. What does that tell us this morning? It tells us that God's plan is to use the ordinary. And you might be looking at our awesome banners that we have up here at the front and the subtitle to our program is Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And the awesome thing that we learn from the book of Acts is that God doesn't recruit just the professionals to do his work. In fact, it's always been God's plan from the very beginning to use the ordinary, average, everyday church member to fulfill his huge mission of taking this gospel to the ends of the world. I want to remind you of a passage that Pastor David shared with us in one of the previous sermons. He took us to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, and we looked at the question, why did God give us apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds. And this verse says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints, and notice there's no comma there, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of, the, of, for building up the body of Christ. So the purpose of this select team of, of apostles that God created was not so that they do all the ministry work, but rather that they equip the early church to be missionaries in their own right. And so often we have this completely upside down. In a lot of churches, the, work, the, the church members feel that their role is to support the pastor in doing the ministry of the church. When in fact, when we read Ephesians chapter 4, it's, abs- it's actually that flipped upside down. The role of the pastors and of teachers and evangelists is to support the church m- members in fulfilling God's calling to do of the ministry of sharing the gospel to the ends of the world. And so that's what we see in part one of Acts chapter 8. Let's go to part two. And here we find verse 5. We got, we're going to start, go to verse 5. So remember, the, this great persecution breaks out, and the apostles are spread all over the, the regions of Samaria and Judea. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Firstly, remember they were scattered abroad preaching the word. What does it mean to preach the word? In this verse it says, seems to equate preaching the word with preaching who? Preaching Christ. And so true preaching of the word is always preaching Christ. Now Philip, who was this Philip person? Remember in two chapters previous, in chapter 6, and I've got a verse up on the screen. So conflict. We, we looked at new growth creates new problems. And conflict breaks out in the, in the early church. And the, the Hellenistic um, Jewish Christians 
they're having this little issue that their widows aren't being looked after like the other widows are, and this conflict breaks out. And when that breaks out, the apostles, they gather everyone together and they say, we need to choose seven deacons, these are the early deacons, seven people, and their task is going to be to fix this problem. It says in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so when you keep reading through, they pick out seven people, one of which is Stephen. And we've already learned about him. He was the one that was stoned in in chapter 7. But another one of those people was the person by the name of Philip. Now, what was Philip's job description in the church according to these verses? Can you see that? The apostles said, we don't want to give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, we will appoint this duty, the duty of serving tables, to these seven men. So as we read through chapter 8, I want you to realize that Philip is not, an, is not one of the 12 apostles. Philip is the equivalent of a deacon, and his job description is to serve tables. And let's see what God does with, some, with someone whose job description is to serve tables. Back to chap, chapter 8, and we're up to verse 6. It says, And the crowds... So Philip... We'll go from verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip goes down to Samaria. Remember, his job description is what? Serving tables. And he's there and he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, and he's preaching the Christ. Does he set a high standard for deacons? Okay, he sets a high standard for any church member in the church. This is an ordinary Christian doing an extraordinary job. In fact, this is, this is apostolic work that he's doing here. Healing people, um, pioneering new areas of mission. This is God's will for the average. This is, this is an ordinary Christian doing extraordinary things. Extraordinary things for God. Verse 8, it says, So that there was much joy in that city. What do you think of that verse? There was much joy in that city. It makes me ask the question, does our church here in Kingscliff, do we bring much joy to the city around us, to the community around us? Kingscliff, Chindera, Tweed, Casarina. Let me ask it another way. If our church here in Kingscliff was suddenly to disappear... What sort of impact would that have upon the surrounding community? Would people even notice? I'll tell you what, Philip's ministry here in this city in Samaria was noticed by the city. And in fact, it brought much joy to that city from one person, one ordinary Christian, doing the work of ministry. Let's go on, verse 9 to 11. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was someone great. So here, one of the people that Philip came across is a person by the name of Simon, and he's a magician. I remember a number of years ago, I was in near Newcastle, and there was this street magician, all dressed up in this fancy costume. And I'll tell you what, it didn't take this magician very long to get a bit of a crowd around him. And everyone's just like, 
just, just waiting for him to do another trick. What's he going to do? How's he going to amaze us? How's he going to entertain us? And here we have a person. This is an ancient one of those people, a magician. And in verse 10 it says, They all paid attention to him, from the, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. So maybe this hints at that the tricks that he was doing was not just sleight of hand, but there might have been a supernatural, almost maybe even demonic element to what he was doing here. But the point is that he has this position in the city where he is an entertainer. He is the celebrity. Everyone is looking up to him and and even almost worshipping him. We get to verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Simon was a man who loved to be the center of attention. And who knows, there might be even some people here in this church who love to be the center of attention. Verse 12 to 13, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, there we have it again, what's he preaching? Jesus Christ. They were baptized both men and women. So here, Philip is in this, this, this area of, of Samaria. He's preaching the good news of Jesus. He's doing these, these signs and miracles. And people are receiving his message. And people are being baptized. And even, in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon, even Simon, accepted the message of Philip. He was baptized, and it says that he followed Philip around, which kind of sounds a little bit like discipleship. Okay? So here we have Simon the magician is suddenly a, a baptized disciple of Jesus from the work of Philip. But we're going to find out in this moment just how authentic his conversion was. Let's go on. Verse 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent to them Peter and John. Now, I love just sort of thinking what would have been going on through the apostles' minds. So remember, they're back in Jerusalem, and their their ministry in Jerusalem started off with a huge bang. 3,000 people, 5,000 people. They had this mega church happening. But what had happened? Persecution came in. The the, the 5,000 plus people, they they scattered all abroad, and the apostles are left by themselves in Jerusalem. And maybe they were feeling some thoughts of failure and disappointment, and they're looking at their mission that God had given them, and they're thinking, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Man, we're struggling with Jerusalem here. How are we ever going to fulfill this mission that we get, that we've been given? And along comes a little bird. I don't know how the, the, um, the news spread back then, but apparently it spread pretty quickly there as well. And they hear news that Samaria has accepted the good news. And what I love about this is often as church leaders, we, we plan and we have our plans and we think, all right, this is, this is what's going to happen, happen next and then we're going to do this and this is how we're going to achieve God's mission here. But I love how in this story, God goes and exceeds their expectations. And the mission goes ahead of their plans and they find themselves there just simply trying to catch up with what God is doing in the community. And so they send down Peter and John and they go down to, to see what's happening in Samaria. Verse 15. And so Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had, was given through the laying of, on the, of the hands, the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here? The apostles come down, they lay their hands on these new believers, and the, and the Holy Spirit is poured out. And it says that, that Simon saw this. Now, I'm not sure exactly what he saw, but it's probably something supernatural took place, maybe something similar to what happened on, at Pentecost, where God confirmed the work that was happening in Samaria by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Simon the magician is there, and remember, he is someone who thinks about tricks and magic and that sort of stuff. That's what he does is his job. And he sees first Philip who comes, and he's like, there's another magician, and look how powerful his things are. And now there's two more magicians who comes, and he is amazed by the magic tricks that these people are performing. These miracles and these signs are coming from a power which is, is greater than what he's ever experienced or seen before. And he starts thinking, man, imagine if I could have this power and these tricks to add to my bag of magic tricks. Then what sort of popularity would I have? Then what sort of attention could I draw to myself? Then what sort of um, celebrity would I become? And so he comes to P- Peter and John. He says, I've got some money. Can I purchase this, um, this gift of this thing that you've got, how you can lay hands on people and, and they receive the Holy Spirit. I've got some money. Give me this gift. And let's see what P- um, Peter says in response. It's not, he's not very subtle in his, his um, condemnation of this, this request. We're up to verse 20 to 21. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. What do we learn from here? We see that you can be baptized, you can be baptized, you can even be a disciple and not be right before God. Can you see that? This guy was baptized, this person was even following after Philip, but his heart was not right before God. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning three reasons why his heart was not right before God. And we're going to see what we can learn from from these three reasons. Number one, Simon the magician was attracted to the display of Christianity, not the Jesus of Christianity. Okay? He was was in there and he sees these signs, he sees these miracles, and he says, I want to have that. But what did he miss? He missed Jesus. And maybe there's some people here who, when they're trying to work out what sort of church they're going to attend, what sort of um, things they're going to follow, they go, oh, that church has really nice music. That church has really great preaching. That church has really great um, fellowship that takes place there. And all those things are good. But what is our primary attraction to being, as being a Christian? Are we attracted to the display of Christianity? Or are we actually attracted to the Jesus of Christianity. Number two, Simon the, Jish, the magician, he added Jesus to his old life instead of making him his new life. What was his old life? He was the one that everyone looked at, up to. He was the one that had this big bag of tricks and amazed everyone. And when he becomes a Christian, he's still 
the exact same person, but he thinks he can have a new trick in his bag of tricks, the miracles and the, and the power that Jesus offers. But Jesus doesn't want to just be an addition to our life. Jesus wants to be our new life. He wants to become everything for us. He wants to change our desires, our attitudes, our, our, our purposes. Everything that we are is to be transformed in Jesus. Now, when that happens, we might still keep some of the old things, such as our, we might still have the same career, we might still have the same job, we might still have the same house or things like that. But in Jesus, those things are completely transformed and we are given new life. He added Jesus to his old life instead of making him his new life. Point number three. Simon the magician, he sought to buy with money what had already been bought with blood. The gift that he was trying to purchase, I guess, was twofold. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of salvation. But did he really understand the price that had already been paid for that salvation that he was trying to purchase? Jesus, the creator God who was up in heaven... He left the glories of heaven for the humiliation and the torture and the shame of a criminal's death upon the cross. The greatest commodity in the universe, the blood of Jesus, was spent so that we can have salvation. And he, he goes and goes, here's some money for the thing that Jesus has already purchased. Can you see how that's offensive to God? Can you imagine God has done so much and then someone comes and tries to purchase the very thing that God has purchased with a few, a few coins? That's an offensive thing for, to God. And that's why Peter gets so stirred up. But when I think about this, I think that so often we fall into the same trap. So often, sometimes I fall into this trap where we think that by our, our good works, our life of service, our um, whatever it might be, our, our generosity, all these things that we do, we think is somehow contributing to our purchasing of our salvation. When in reality, the gospel says that Jesus has already paid it all. And so he sought to buy with money what had already been bought with blood. And so Philip there is having this booming ministry when suddenly God calls him elsewhere. And so we're going to go now to the final section of chapter 8, which is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And as we go through this, I want this last section to be really practical. We've been talking about how God's plan... I think I have this slide, or maybe I don't. Anyway, God's plan is to use the ordinary. Well, if we are part of the ordinary, which I'm a part of as well, and God's planning to use us to share the good news with others, how do we actually go about that? What are some practical principles that the Bible can share with us on how we can share our faith with, with our friends and our family and those people around us? Now, this final story, we're going to come up with a number of principles from this ordinary Christian, Philip, on how to share Jesus with those people around us. So let's start now in verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now this is a fairly crazy request that God has of Philip. Remember, his ministry in Samaria is booming all these people are, are being baptized and are, and are following Jesus. And an angel comes to him and says, Philip, I want you to leave all of this, go down to this random road south of Jerusalem. And he doesn't give him any reason why to go there. And so the first thing we need to be is to be connected. Because God had an, 
incredible um, ministry opportunity for Philip down on this road. But if he wasn't connected to Jesus, he never would have been able to hear God's calling for him to go down there in the first place. So the first thing we need to be is connected. Verse 27. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, is there any umming and ahhing about from Philip whether he should follow God's call or not? What does it say? In verse 27 it says, And he rose and went. The second thing that we see about Philip is he was obedient. Okay? He was connected, so he was aware of God's leading in his life. And secondly, he was obedient. And he goes down to this desert place. And when he gets there, he comes across this Ethiopian. Now remember the mission that God gave to his church? You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Ethiopia would be in the ends of the earth category. Um, one one um, commentator I was reading was suggesting that for this Ethiopian to make the trek from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and back probably took him around about 100 days round trip. This is a fairly significant um, little journey that he takes. And, but he was went there to worship, which shows us that he was a genuine seeker. And in addition, he was, a court, he was official in the courts of the queen of Ethiopia, in charge of all of her um, tre- all the treasury in the, in, the, in, the, in the palace. Now, if Philip was to sit down one day and say, I want to somehow make a difference for Jesus in the palace of the court in this distant kingdom in Ethiopia... Would he have ever been able to orchestrate that himself? Not a chance. But here, because he's connected and he's obedient through the providences of that God puts before them, this one guy on this huge journey, and then secondly, Philip on this equal, well, not quite as big, but a large journey as well, they cross paths. And here is an opportunity to share the gospel. Amen. Verse 28, it says, he, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran, ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? The third thing that we see that Philip does is he's interested. So the third principle is to be interested. So the Ethiopian's in a chariot, so he's being um, driven by horses probably, and so he's going at quite a pace. And Philip's just there walking along this path, and I can imagine he just gets overtaken by this chariot. And the Spirit reveals to him, this is the person that you are to minister to. And so he starts running, and he catches up to this, this chariot, and he's running down beside this chariot, and he's huffing and he's puffing. And he says, and he sees that he's reading aloud the book of Isaiah. And so he shows interest in this person's life and says, do you understand what you're reading? Now, are we showing interest in the lives of those people around us? So often... You'll be down in the shopping center and maybe eating at the food court there or on a train and there's all these people around, but are we showing interest in their lives? Are we asking those questions, asking how their day is, asking things to be interested and show that we have an interest in them? But this is what Philip does. Verse 30, it says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what, what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Here we see a Bible study taking place. Philip gets up there, he hops on the back of this chariot, 
and they sit down and they study together the Word of God. And you might be wondering why we have things like Bible workers at this church. Well, Bible studies, personal one-on-one Bible studies is a biblical um, feature of the early church. And, and, and here we see that this person, even though he's from the palace in Ethiopia, and he's just this random person walking along, he doesn't consider himself above this other person. But he humbles himself and says, how can I understand the scriptures unless someone reveals it to me? Verse uh, 32. It says, Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Can you see how God's providence provides doors and and, um, opportunities for us to share um, the good news about Jesus? Here he is reading Isaiah 53. Now, if there is ever a chapter in the Old Testament that opened up a door for you to preach Jesus, it's Isaiah 53. And the Holy Spirit is orchestrating such a huge series of events to allow um, Philip to share Jesus with this person. And the the fourth point is to be contextual. Okay? And so being contextual means you don't go in there with your one set way to share Jesus, but rather when you're interested and you're listening to where this person is at, you start from that very place where they're at. You change your style. You change your, your approach to meet people where they're at. Be contextual. Verse 34, it says, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And I love this, this verse here. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Amen. Point number four, five is to be bold. The door, I can just imagine, um, Philip is there listening and he's just waiting for the opportunity. And he says, who's the prophet talking about in Isaiah 53? Doorways open, but it requires boldness to walk through that door. And so Philip is there and he says, beginning, he's contextual, beginning with that very scripture, he preaches what? He preaches Jesus. When we preach the word, who do we preach? We preach Jesus. The next step, verse 36, it says, And as he was going along the road, there came some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, here we see an example of someone under conviction. Okay? And to be under conviction means that you are, this person is hearing the voice of God to their heart, and is hearing God revealing to them that they are to make a decision based on this information that they've just been presented with. And so Philip is there, and our sixth step is to be watchful. When you present the word of Jesus, when you present Jesus to someone, you're watching to see if they are actually discerning the voice of God in their lives. Let's jump down to verse 38. It says, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Step number seven, be intentional. Instead of just leave, saying, Oh, he's, he's been touched by the message... Here we see an intentional effort to follow through with this decision and follow through with this conviction that's been put upon this man's heart. And so the seventh step is to be intentional. And the chariot is stopped, and they go down together, and this man is baptized. And I love what happens at the end of this. Verse 39, it says, And when they came back up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. How cool is that? He comes out and suddenly Philip vanishes. 
just completely disappears. And he's like, but he goes on his way rejoicing. Now, often we feel like we have the need to, when we lead someone to Jesus, to do all the follow-up steps as well. But here you notice that Philip has no, had, has no idea what actually happened after this conversation. But his last thing he has to do is to be trusting that God is able to take the work that he has done and complete it in his own way. So there's eight steps. Be connected, be obedient, be interested, be contextual, be bold, be watchful, be intentional, and be trusting. I want you to take out your Connect cards now. If there's anyone here who did not receive one of these Connect cards, I'd like to um, ask you to raise your hand, and we have some deacons who are going to walk past with some pens and some cards. So if you missed out on one of these on the way in, just raise your hand and, and, and someone will come and give one of those to you. Now there's a number of things that we have here on, on this card. And the first thing is... The first thing on the card is, yes, I realize that God needs ordinary people like me to be missionaries. Okay? As we saw, 3,000 missionaries were sent outside of Jerusalem, and not one of them was an apostle. But they were the ordinary church members. Now, being a missionary doesn't mean you have to go off to a far-off country, because remember, we are currently in the far-off country from where this work began. We can be a missionary here on our doorsteps. So if that's you, tick, yes, I realize that God needs ordinary people like me to be missionaries. Step number two. God, the step, option number two is, God, please make my heart right with you. Maybe you're someone who this morning, when we went through the story of the um, Simon the Magician, you're thinking, maybe I'm falling to some of those, those, those places where this magician was. Maybe I've added Jesus onto my life instead of making him my new life. Maybe, um, maybe I'm attracted to the display of Christianity, but not the Jesus of Christianity. And maybe I've been trying to purchase with my works and my actions and my generosity and my service the very thing that Jesus paid his, spent his blood purchasing for me. So if that's you, tick, God, please make my heart right with you. Now, thirdly, now, this one's a very practical one. If you tick this, you actually have to do something, okay? It says, I'm going to reread the story of Philip and the Ethiopian this week, seeking to understand and apply its principles. Okay, so there's a very practical step that you can take this week. And as we unpack this story, we saw that in this story, we see an example of how the ordinary Christian can do incredible things for God. And remember, through him allowing God to use him, he potentially unlocked the gospel's way into entering a whole nation of Ethiopia, even the very palace of Ethiopia, even the very continent of Africa. We never know the little things that we do. In this case, it was one conversation, what those little things can actually achieve in the, in the larger picture. Now, on the right there, there's a number of um, options that you can also tick. Up the top, we have receiving Bible studies, and maybe you're in a situation like the Ethiopian was this morning. You're thinking, I would like to understand more about Jesus, but how can I unless somebody guides me? And if you're someone who desires to learn more about Jesus through um, studying the Bible with someone, tick that box. Underneath that, getting baptized. I love the question that Philip, that um, the Ethiopian asked, what prevents me from being baptized? Okay. 
what is there? What sort of obstacles could lie between me and being baptized? And because baptism is seeing that God wants all of us. It's the appropriate response to hearing the, the preaching of the gospel. And so if you would like some more information about baptism, tick that box underneath that, leading a small group, learning how to give Bible studies. And you can fill in your name and details there. And on the back, we see here an opportunity for you to write down prayer requests. And I have a great, this is a real privilege to go through each week and to actually um, read through those prayer requests, personally pray through those, and then send them off to our prayer team. And so I'd like to invite the deacons to make their way to the front. And they're going to pass the boxes along. And so just place your, um, your card, and if you'll give them one of the pens, place that in the box as well. And, and while they do that, we're going to have a song from our musicians. Just seated as you are, join with us in this beautiful hymn. Near us,
Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, quite often in our lives, we just feel like ordinary people, Lord. But that's okay because you've chosen ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And it's not in our own strength, but it's because we are, um, we are relying upon and being empowered by an extraordinary God. And so, Father, I just pray that you will help us to step up, Lord. Maybe learn from the example of Stephen. Maybe learn from the example of Philip. And maybe take hold of the calling that you've um, put upon our lives. May our hearts be right before you today, Lord. There's so many things that, that, can, um, that can cause us to get distracted and to focus on other things, Lord. But we pray that we will just be truly repentant today, Lord. Where we can turn our, our backs on, on the past, and Lord, and take hold of the, the new life that you offer each one of us. And Lord, finally, I just pray that some of those practical tips that we learned from the story of the Philip and the Ethiopian, I just pray that you'll help us to find ourselves in similar sort of situations, Father, where we, are, we cross paths with people that it is, can only be said it was because of providence that we talked to this person. And may through the small things that we do, Lord, may your gospel go forth. And we pray that you'll help us to be people of faith, people who are connected with you, and people who... Um, are continually searching after and being connected to you each and every day. And we pray for this church as well, Lord, and we pray that this church will be a, um, a group of people that brings joy to this city. And we pray that we'll truly make an impact in this community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.